0: finishing up tonight our series called More Than Happy, and uh, we know that God wants us to be happy, but more than that, he wants us to be holy. And so, um, one last time, at least as far as this series goes, um, let's say this together. What God wants to do in you and through you is more important than what you want him to do for you. The Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, um, they tell us, they, they paint a picture of the holy character that God wants to paint in us. Um, he wants to make us holy. He wants to instill and shape his character in you and me. That's his priority. And so when we respond to our creator in loving obedience and he begins to shape that character in us, what we experience in life is so much better than happiness. It's so much more than happiness. It's a peace and a joy and a deep-seated contentment that simply is not found outside of a relationship with God. That's more than happiness. And I'm glad that God wants to do that in me, and he wants to do that in you. And so, since this is the last message in this series... Let's read all of the Beatitudes this morning. Guys, I'm getting some echo up here. Do I need to do anything different? Let's read this. Matthew chapter 5 says, Now when he saw the crowds, Jesus went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And then we get to the last beatitude in verse 10. And it's a little bit different tone. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then interestingly, that's the only beatitude that Jesus explains a little bit. He goes on and he expands on that one. And he says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice. Rejoice. And that word, that's more than just an emotional thing. It's it's an attitude. It's a mindset. Rejoice, he says, and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's talk about the bad news first. Like we said, this is the only one of the Beatitudes that Jesus explains. And interestingly, in his explanation, he he switches. See, in the Beatitude itself, he's he's using the third person. He's saying, they, right? Right? In fact, in all the Beatitudes, it's they in them. That's third person. But then when he gets to the explanation, he turns to second person. He starts saying you. It becomes more personal when he expands on it. The idea seems to be you can expect this. The persecuted isn't just something that's far off or somebody that's far off. He's saying, You, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you will be persecuted. Now, that's kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around, isn't it? But we need to understand and we need to realize that the vast majority of Christians in this world and the vast majority of Christians who have ever lived practice their faith. At the possible expense of their lives. So maybe the question for us tonight. Isn't so much are you willing to die for Jesus. Because any of us could say that. That's really easy to say in this culture isn't it. I would die for Jesus. Maybe the question for us tonight. Will you live for Jesus. Will you live for Jesus. But know that if you do. Even here, even in this culture, there are certain ramifications of that. If you allow God to shape his character in you the way that these beatitudes tell us, if you allow God to shape that character in you, there are going to be people who aren't going to like it. There are going to be people who aren't going to like you. And that's simply because you're living, um, you're, you're living contrary to how most of the world lives. And let's face it, we don't like it when people are going the wrong way, do we? I mean, when you're living for Christ and you're allowing God to shape his character in you, you're going the right way, but from the world's perspective, you're going the wrong way. And we don't like it when people are going the wrong way. One of my pet peeves about Walmart I have lots of pet peeves about Walmart, <laughs> and yet I'm there all the time. It really, any big parking lot, you know when the, when the parking spaces are angled and you're only supposed to go down one direction? It bugs me when people go the wrong way. Amen. It's so annoying. That gets an name in. Not too long ago, I messed up and went down the wrong way at Walmart, and I I heard about it from my family because they know how much it bugs me. We don't like it when people are going the wrong direction. We don't like it when people are going against the flow that everybody else is traveling in. And so in this last beatitude, Jesus is basically saying this. Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to be straight up with you. That's a really loose translation, okay? But Jesus is saying, I'm going to be straight up with you. If you allow God to shape this character in you, you will be going against the flow of this world. And you will not be liked because of it. That's the bad news. Let's talk about the good news. Here's the good news. Jesus says that if you allow God to shape this character in you and people insult you and people lie about you and treat you differently because of it, he says, you know what? You're blessed. If you're persecuted, if people are a jerk to you because of your faith, you're blessed. Now, he's not saying um, if your boss is a jerk to you, you're going to be blessed. Now, if your boss is a jerk to you because you're a Christian and you live that out, then yeah, he's saying you're going to be blessed. He's not saying that if your teacher gives you an F and you should have gotten at least a C, that's not what he's talking about. Now, if your teacher gives you an F because you are a Christian and you live out your faith, that's what he's talking about. He says, when people treat you differently because of me, because of your faith in me, he says, you're blessed. And he says, in fact, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What in the world does that mean? What is the kingdom of heaven? Matthew talks about that a lot. Or the kingdom of God. He uses those interchangeably. The kingdom of heaven is everything that we experience in a relationship with God. It's that joy. It's what we talked about a minute ago. That that deep-seated joy and peace and contentment. It's the salvation we receive. It's freedom. It's all of that. It's the joy that we have from being in God's presence. All of that is the kingdom of God. And so the question is do we experience the kingdom of God somewhere in the future or do we experience it now? The answer to that is yes. It's both. When you read how Jesus uses that phrase throughout the Gospels, especially throughout Matthew, in in some ways it's yet to come, and in some ways it's now. You see, we won't experience the kingdom of God in all of its fullness until we leave this earth, either, either through death or Jesus coming back, whichever is first. But here's the great thing, folks. We get to taste it now. See, Jesus didn't just say that he came to bring eternal life. He also said he came to bring abundant life now. Our faith is not just about heaven somewhere off in the distance at a a later date. It is about that, but it's also about what God wants to do and can do in our lives right now, today. I... um, I love to smoke meat. I better finish that sentence, huh? <laughs> I love to smoke meat, especially brisket and pork loin. That's my favorite. Mm. And so after I've spent several hours smoking a big chunk of meat, I bring it in the house and I'm cutting it up and Sarah's getting, getting the other parts of the meal ready and I'm, I'm slicing that meat up. What do I do? I take a bite, right? Or two? Or three? Why do I do that? Because I'm a man. And that's what I'm supposed to do. I think God designed me as a man to take a taste of that meat while I'm cutting it up. And Sarah, she gets on to me for doing it. Why? Because she's a woman. We're just playing our God-given roles. But I taste that meat. I taste that little bite. And I think, man, if that little bite is that good, how good is the full meal going to be? That's the kingdom of God, folks. That's the kingdom of heaven. When we turn to Christ and we allow God to start making us holy and to start shaping his character in us as the beatitudes say, we begin to taste the joy and the peace and the contentment and the freedom and the salvation. And if the taste is that good, how good is the fullness of it going to be someday? Jesus says when you are persecuted for my sake when people treat you differently for my sake know that you're on the right path when a godless world that's heading in the opposite direction of God doesn't like you or treat you differently because you are walking towards God then you are walking in the right direction and he says you're blessed And the kingdom of God is yours. And you get to taste it right now. And someday you're going to taste it in all of its fullness. Jesus says, great is your reward. Great is your reward. What's that reward mean? He He doesn't really expand on that. But the idea of this reward is... There's going to be heartache now. There's going to be trouble now. But there's something better coming. Paul puts it this way. He says, our present troubles are small and they won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever so we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. There was a phrase in that last song that we sang. but was it? Afflictions eclipsed by glory. That's what it's talking about. Afflictions eclipsed. By glory. That's the kingdom of heaven. And that's what Jesus is talking about in verse 12 when he, he talks about this reward in heaven. What he's saying is there's a payoff at the end of this journey, folks. There's a payoff. Let me ask you, moms, a question. Those of you, moms, in the room, raise your hand if giving birth was the most painful thing you've ever experienced. Moms, raise your hand. Keep them up. Moms, if your hand was raised, keep your hand raised if you had more than one child. Okay, you can put them down. Why would you do that? (laughs) If it was the most painful thing you have ever experienced, Why would you do it again? I'll tell you why you did it again. You did it again. Because the pain of childbirth is soon outweighed by the joy of holding that baby, isn't it? That's why you did it again. Folks, the pain of this world, the hardship of this world, the struggles of this world will soon be outweighed, will soon be eclipsed by the joy of living for eternity in the presence of God. And that is the reward. Jesus is saying, Look, take heart. When you experience troubles in this world, especially troubles because of me, take heart. Because there's something coming that is better than anything you have ever experienced. And yes, you can taste it now. And even that little morsel that you can taste now is better than anything you will ever experience without me. So take heart, he says. Take heart. Know that there's a payoff coming. So here's what we're left with. When you take this last beatitude in light of the rest of them, here's what we're left with. We tend to value personal safety and security, don't we? I mean, that's why we say that policemen and fire, you know, firefighters and and soldiers, that's why we say that they're heroes, because they put their own personal safety and their own personal well-being aside so that you and I can live in safety and security. And so we call them, rightly, heroes, because we value that. As people, we value that. Well, the Beatitudes, especially with this last one, they call us also to live a life where that is inverted where we put the needs of others and the well-being of others ahead of our own, where we say, I'm going to love God and I'm going to love people. Even if that means doing it at the expense of my own well-being. Even at the expense of my own well-being. They call us to live a life where we say, I will let God Do anything he wants to do in me and through me. Does that phrase sound familiar? I will let God do anything he wants to do in me and through me, no matter the cost. Because one, I trust him. And two, I know that he loves me. I know that he loves me. Read this with me, would you? I will follow God and I will give God everything no matter what it costs me because I trust him and because he is worth it. That's what the Beatitudes call us to do. That's what the cross calls us to do. That's what Good Friday calls us to do. That's what Resurrection Sunday calls us to do. God, I will give you everything. I will live for you I will give everything I have and everything that I am to you. I will will surrender it completely to you and let you do whatever you want to do in me and through me because I trust you and because you are worth it. And you want to know the cool thing? Jesus doesn't just preach this. He lived it. He lived it perfectly. In fact, we could take every one of the Beatitudes and we could very easily look throughout the Gospels and find an example of Jesus living out every single one of the Beatitudes, including this last one. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you. Jesus lived that out. He doesn't call us to do anything that he has not lived out himself. Jesus is the ultimate example of being persecuted for doing right. He's the ultimate example of putting the well-being of others, of putting love for God and love for other people ahead of his own well-being no matter what it costs him. And so I've asked four individuals to come and help me close out this sermon. So if you four would come at this time, They're going to read for us the story of Jesus being the ultimate example of being persecuted for doing right. You know the story well, but I want you to listen as they read. I want you to listen with fresh ears. I want you to listen as if you've never heard the story before. Listen to the story of Jesus being persecuted for doing right.
1: Then the people who who had arrested Jesus led him to the home of the high priest where the teachers of religious law and the elders had gathered. Inside, the leading priests and the entire council were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus so they could put him to death. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I have demanded in the name of the living God, Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus replied, You have said it. And in the future, you will see the the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand, coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, Blasphemy, why do we need another witness? You have all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He deserves to die. Then they began to spit in Jesus' face and beat him with their fist. Some slapped him, jeering, Prophecy to us, you Messiah, who hit you that time? Now
2: Jesus was standing before Pilate, the Roman governor. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him, and Jesus replied, You said it. But when the leading priests and the elders made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent. Did you hear all these charges they are bringing against you? Pilate demanded. But Jesus made no response to any of the charges, much to the governor's surprise. Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. This year there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, Which one? Do you want me to release you to you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? The crowd shouted back, Barabbas. Pilate responded, then what should I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? And they shouted back, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared back even louder, crucify him. So Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip and then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified.
3: Some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their quarters and they called out the entire regiment. They stripped him and put on a scarlet robe on him. They wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. And as they placed the reed stick in his right hand as a scepter. Then they knelt before him in mockery and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they spit on him, grabbed a stick and struck him in the head with it. And when they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off his robe and put on his own clothes again. Then they led him away to be crucified. After they had nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Then they sat around and kept guard as he hung there. A sign was fastened above his head, announcing the charge against him. It read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two criminals were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left.
4: The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, if you are the Son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. So he is the King of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now, and we will believe in him. He trusted God, so let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and released his spirit.
0: God blesses those who are persecuted doing right for the kingdom of heaven is theirs folks Jesus gave everything even at the cost of his life he gave everything Looks like, whatever your past looks like, however you've been treated, whatever's going on, I want you to hear this Jesus was persecuted and gave everything for you because, in his mind, you are worth giving everything for. Isn't he worth giving everything for in return? Isn't he worth us saying, God, I will follow you anywhere. I will do anything you want me to do. I will let you do anything you want to do in me and through me trust you, and because you are worth it. Pastor Jim is going to come lead us in communion. You guys can have a seat. Thank you. As, um, as we receive these elements tonight... about that statement. God, I will give you everything because I trust you and because you're worth it. Let that be your response to him on this Good Friday as we think about what he's given for us. Give him everything
5: because he's worth it. reminded that in the same night that our Lord was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Tonight we have that privilege. I'm thinking that remembering is more than just bringing something to our thoughts. This kind of remembering means we direct our life this direction. It causes us to be what he's called us to be. So tonight we have that privilege. In our church, we serve open communion, which simply means you do not have to be a member here to come and partake. We have three stations at the front here, and one at the back. If you you need uh, gluten-free, we do have a place in the back where Steve Enoch is. Just ask for that. This is an act of worship, along with remembering not only what Christ has done, but the hope that Adam talked about of Him coming again. So as we uh, continue to worship, and just uh, feel free to get up during the, this next song and come. And you can take it back to your seat and partake, or you can partake it as you receive it. But let's keep in this spirit of worship to a God who gave us everything.
0: God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the cross. Amen. Real quickly before we dismiss, folks, let me give you the shortened version of this story. Years ago, I was driving down a country road. I passed an old cemetery. And in the middle of that cemetery, there was this little hill and there was an old man who could barely walk. He was hunched over a walker and he was slowly, painstakingly making his way up this little hill to a grave at the top. Several weeks later, I was still thinking about this man and I thought, you know, I was laying in bed one night and I thought, the only thing that could motivate a man in that condition to walk up that hill is love. Love. That's the only thing. And then I was struck by another thought. I thought of another man in horrible physical condition, not because he was old, but because he'd been beaten and whipped almost to the point of death. And this man, at some point, must have looked up and he saw a hill in front of him, a much bigger hill than the one in that, Middle of that cemetery. And he knew that he had to make his way up that hill knowing it wasn't somebody else's grave at the top, it was his own death that was waiting up there. What's the one thing that could have motivated that man in his condition to walk up that hill? May you lay your head on your pillow tonight, thinking about the cross and knowing without a shadow of a doubt that you are deeply loved by an amazing. Go in peace on this crucifixion Friday and we'll see you in about 36 hours on Resurrection Sunday. Go in peace.